0: Hello and welcome to the AMP Podcast, the show where we discuss the latest trends, research and insights in the entertainment industry. My name's Nick Thomas, I'm the Editorial Director at Ampere Analysis, and I will be your host for today. Earlier this month, we published a video looking at how streamers' focus has shifted towards profitability and what this will mean for the wider industry in the year ahead. On today's show, we'll be diving a bit deeper into some of the themes we touched on there and in particular the trends for 2024 around the commissioning and distribution of content. I'm joined today by Fred Black, Hannah Walsh, and Lottie Towler. Welcome to the show. You're listening to the AMP podcast from Ampere Analysis.
1: To learn more about Ampere's research across the media, games and sports industry, head
0: to AmpereAnalysis.com. So Lottie, to get us started, what's prompted this discussion and the industry-wide shift towards streaming profitability in 2024?
2: So the streaming market has become quite crowded um, and saturated, particularly in more mature markets. So it's hard to grow bottom line subscriber numbers. Um, so instead, the focus has really shifted to look at how these s platforms can grow their revenues, even though um, subscriber numbers may not be growing as much. And this is really by firstly monetizing their existing subscriber base a bit better. So for example, we've seen the launch of ad tiers, changes in pricing structure, um, Netflix cracking down on password sharing. So essentially getting more money from the average subscriber. But these companies are also very much thinking about content in a different way. So also trying to monetize that content more effectively. So instead of keeping all content In house, non exclusively, we're starting to see players experiment more with non exclusive licensing. So, whether that's to other S4 platforms, but also AVOD and Fast platforms.
0: Thanks, Lottie. I think what we're going to do today, some of those themes are huge, of course, like advertising and pricing, and we'll be looking at those in in later editions. I think today, one of the things we want to pick up on is the impact on commissioning specifically. So, Fred, turning to you, it's, it's been a tough year for the studios. Well, 2023 was a tough year. So, how are things looking for 2024?
1: Yeah, so 2023 was a very tough year for um, the commissioning sector. I think it's probably worth running through exactly how tough a year it was. So, last year, globally, commissions fell by uh, 14%. That's 19% in the scripted sector and 12% in unscripted. The scripted numbers, I think, are particularly alarming because they are really quite across the board. So if you take the top 30 commissioning companies globally, 22 of them reduced the number of commissions they were making last year, and 12 of those reduced by 20% or more. So really big cutbacks. And that includes five of the top six. So just running through our kind of studios, our top players, Disney reduced their scripted commissions by 47% last year, Comcast 37%, Paramount, Warner Bros. Discovery 31%. Netflix, 21%, and Amazon by 11%. So just across those six companies, we lost 368 scripted TV series being ordered. So more than a series a day for a year. It's fairly easy to try and kind of sweep some of that under the rug of the strikes in the US, but actually the drop was pretty global. So scripted globally fell 19%. So while the strikes kind of contributed to the US drop being higher overall, Across the world, it was a big drop, and some of the kind of international companies involved in that, be uh, companies like Z, scripted commission has dropped by fifty-eight percent as their kind of merger with Sony stalled. RTL fell by twenty-six percent, particularly their streaming platforms cutting back there. So it's a global issue. Companies are really having to cut back drastically, and particularly I think with that kind of list of names, you can see there's a problem somewhere with companies getting caught trying to transition from linear first to video on demand first players as the kind of video on demand sector contracted a little bit they kind of got stuck in the middle ground and are now having to drastically cut back on their plans where we can see a little more sunlight through the clouds is with public broadcasters groups like bbc france tv zdf ard nhk in japan rai They maintained their scripted commissions over the year. Actually, it was a 2% growth across those six. At a point in the industry where kind of flat is basically up, I think it's quite likely that over the next year, two years, both as an industry and also the audience are going to kind of remember the real value of a public broadcasting tradition, particularly in Europe, which, as we know, has kind of been under threat over the last few years when people thought the
0: big streamers were going to be the future face of content. And Hannah, obviously Fred's mentioned there the, the, the sort of uh, reduction in output from the, the big studios. Is that an opportunity for local broadcasters, national broadcasters, uh, in terms of their commissioning and spend?
3: I definitely think it is a opportunity. A few of the European broadcasters had already decided to cut back on US acquisitions. So ProSieben in Germany came out very publicly and said they wouldn't be pursuing US content as a key acquisition for them going forward. Instead, focusing on local content, we've had some of them for RTL and, of course, the UK broadcasters like ITV. It definitely gives them more room to produce new content and also less competition for new original programming that's released in the same market by the likes of Netflix and the other streaming services. In addition to that, we're also seeing some interesting New dynamics between broadcasters and streaming services. So, you have the likes of Disney Plus carrying the uh, Doctor Who, uh, the new Doctor Who series, something we haven't really seen before. So, I think the broadcasters are benefiting a lot from that cutback in US productions.
0: That's a great point. And I think in the UK, we've seen that particularly in January with two massive shows from the linear broadcast, the traditional broadcasters that have dominated industry conversations. So, the BBC's second series of The Traitors uh, has been another massive hit. Um, and on ITV, their drama, Mr. Bates versus the Post Office, has has been an extraordinary success. Um, so I think we're seeing the broadcasters, or the public broadcasters, really seize the opportunity and, and do what they do best. Fred, going back to your point, when will customers start to see the impact of the commissioning slowdown on their screens in 2024? So I think they're
1: probably already starting to see the effects we're already seeing a lot less content i think so far audiences have coped with that just due to being able to go back through stuff that was kind of released in that glut where nobody had enough time to watch absolutely everything but um eventually it will catch up and consumers will start to think hold on why do i subscribe to five or six streaming services when they're not even producing any new content that i want to watch anymore in terms of the strike effects, those are ongoing. So US broadcast is back up and running with seasons sort of starting in January and February this year. Um, that means like some of the shows that have translated well to streaming, like Abbott Elementary, will be back on people's screens. But the kind of more prestige shows are going to be five, six, seven months down the line before they can return. And that's going to leave a lot of streaming services, I think, sweating a little bit on not having enough. Uh, content to release, particularly through March, April, when we normally see kind of Emmy-baiting content. I know because the delayed Emmys just rolled around, but it seems very soon to start talking about the next lot. But actually, the eligibility is going to close quite soon. I think um, the effects are coming, but they'll peak sort of in the uh, Q2, Q3 this year.
0: So, Fred, it's not all been about the US strikes, but obviously now they're over. What what has been the the upturn in in commissioning that you've seen?
1: So, so far, at least, and obviously, we've only really had the festive period to compare whether things are coming back to normal. But so far, December, the second half of November, didn't really show a massive upswing in US commissions. Things kind of remained maybe as they were towards the end of 2022, maybe slightly lower. So I think the kind of trend of the major companies almost using the strikes to cloak their cutbacks is uh more of a takeaway van, you know. This is a blip like COVID was, and we're going to jump straight back to business as usual afterwards.
0: Another trend that you've identified in the data is around kind of subs- well, We've identified in, in across our product is around subscriber growth stagnation for streaming services in in the US and the UK, the mature markets, uh, and that's impacted commissioning as well, hasn't it? In terms of where commissioners are are investing money.
1: Yeah, for sure. So the streaming services are increasingly focusing their original output on markets where subscriber numbers can can still grow. number of commissions has come down in the US. It's also come down for the streamers internationally, but there are select markets that they've kind of maintained targeted. Amazon have been quite active in Southeast Asia countries like Thailand. Poland has been a big target for Netflix. It's actually their only major source of originals, but they grew the number of originals they commissioned in last year. Um, Korea has been a target for Netflix and Disney for a while now. One market, however, where commissions from the global streamers really aren't growing anymore is India. And that sits at a really interesting crossroads in the kind of shift from the focus on subscriber growth to a focus on profitability. India has an enormous population, an enormous pool of potential subscribers, Internet access has improved massively over the last 10 years as well. However, it's very difficult to see a route to profitability for streaming there just because the prices that the streamers were priced at but can be priced at to get enough subscribers is very low. And so it's quite clear to see where when streamers shifted from focusing on subscriber growth to profitability, they had to shift from focusing on Indian originals to stop commissioning in that market.
0: And Hannah, you're looking likewise at content spend in these markets uh, and and the trends and the the changes there. So do you see the trends that Fred's identifying and and what else are you uh, uncovering in our data?
3: Yes. So starting with India, we're definitely seeing a similar trend. So spend last year did increase to begin with year on year. But as we got towards the end of the year, we actually began to see that tail off in terms of the spend by streamers. Part of that is due to the shifting of the IPL cricket rights and going from Disney Plus Hotstar to Viacom18. So that meant a lot of subscribers shifted from a global platform to a more local platform. And then ultimately that impacts where they want to invest in that local entertainment content. So we're definitely going to see less uh, investment towards Indian local content next year. But Poland's an interesting one. We actually saw that Poland is the sixth largest investor of content um in Europe across the linear broadcasters but when you factor in then the streaming service investment it drops down to the 10th largest market so there's definitely room for polish investment to grow and part of that will be due to the kind of cheaper production costs available in Poland compared to market like the US and then in other markets around central and eastern Europe the attractive production incentives that are available for the production of local content across the entire region
2: I guess the other um, factor at play is not only a stream is trying to create local content for sort of target markets, but they're trying to create content that is globally appealing to a wider range of their subscribers. And obviously content of different genres or types or content from certain markets tends to perform quite differently um, abroad compared to, to locally. In general, what we really are seeing is that appetite for international content is growing. So within our consumer survey data, we can see that over the last few years, the proportion of consumers that are that enjoy watching content that's dubbed or subtitled, that's been going up, um, largely driven by sort of younger consumers. And we can also see this reflected in title engagement. So if we look at the top globally popular titles sort of year on year, we can see that they're becoming less skewed towards US productions. Um, Quite a lot of Western European titles in there and also a lot of APAC titles, largely driven by Japanese and South Korean productions. And actually, Japanese and South Korean productions uh, work really, really well because they truly can become global hits. You know, they're enjoyed by consumers from sort of all regions um, as well as sort of very much within the region. Whereas I think... The same isn't always true in reverse, so you can have a really big title in kind of Europe, and maybe that will resonate with the u s and Latin American subscribers as well, but it tends not to translate too well to APAC markets, so this kind of stands out as an area where I think global streamers could start investing more in because at the moment, if you look at the kind of the demand and the popularity and compare it to how much those global players are spending in the region um, yeah, it's, it's, much, it's much lower than their sort of focus and expenditure in Western Europe, for example.
0: We've been talking about the different markets where streamers are investing their content, but what about the type of content they're investing in? Is it still primarily scripted where they're looking for those big hits?
3: In terms of their overall content spend, we're still seeing the global streamers focus more of that on scripted content in terms of a share now that is typically due to those titles being more expensive to produce than an unscripted title. So we're seeing a larger share, around 75% of content spend going towards scripted content, but we're typically seeing fewer scripted titles coming out the end of that. There's a growing growing investment towards unscripted content, particularly we're seeing that in um, key Western European markets, but also LATAM who are seeing a more delayed uptick in interest of uh, reality content.
0: So Fred, in terms of genres, what what are the prospects for something like reality in
1: 2024? Unscripted saw a downturn last year as well. It wasn't as bad as um, scripted. So the cutbacks were primarily in documentary and reality content. The studios were actually pretty consistent here. So Warner Bros, Paramount, Disney, all cut by 15 or 16% in their unscripted. Comcast slightly higher at 28%. Netflix at 20%. But the biggest cuts in particular were to the reality content across the board. Kind of more expensive blue chip documentary as well. Big Nature and Animals titles didn't get commissioned last year. The one kind of theme that stayed strong was uh, true crime documentary content, which continues to be exceedingly popular you still seem to be able to get a massive hit out of um, one of those shows although quite how many remaining shocking crimes there can be to be covered is maybe the question mark on true crime docs what's most interesting though across that content i think is that there's a really big difference between titles being commissioned for the first time so first seasons uh, versus renewals so first run unscripted content was down 14 percent last year renewals only fell 3%. And what that really speaks to is a kind of lack of risk-taking in the market. So if you have a unscripted reality or documentary franchise that is successful or even semi-successful with your audience, commissioners are deciding to keep going with that even, you know, expanding it from one season a year to two seasons a year rather than uh taking the risk on something new. And I think the kind of risk that you are taking when you do that is that audiences are going to get fatigued of your successful content more quickly. So there are only, you know, so many spin-offs to the bachelor that you can do in the U S there are only so many times you can run love Island in a year without audiences starting to switch off. Before we move on from unscripted, uh, I think it's worth mentioning Warner Bros discovery. So they commissioned twice as much unscripted content as anybody else last year. That was still a cutback of um, 16%, but they produced near or they commissioned nearly a thousand unscripted TV seasons last year, which is, I think we can probably all agree, an
0: unwieldy amount of content to be making. So we've discussed how commissioning activity has changed in 2023 and 2024, and it's going to be a big theme for the year I want to move on now to content licensing, which seems another really important trend for us to discuss. I think a few years ago, the studios were very much focused on content exclusivity and keeping content in house. But clearly that's changed and it's going to change even more this year, I think. So, Lottie, can you tell us what's prompted that change?
2: Yeah, so ever since the studio platform started launching, sort of back in 2019, 2020, we started seeing all of their content that was previously licensed to the likes of Netflix and Amazon being pulled back in-house and sort of kept very exclusively. You know, typically we were looking at roughly 90% or more of SVOD catalogs being being exclusive. And that's really starting to change as these platforms realise that, you know, while it's still important for them to keep those tentpole titles, have like releases spread throughout the year to kind of retain subscribers um as well as attracting some new ones in sort of new markets having that kind of longer tail of library content just sitting in their catalog is perhaps not the best way to take advantage of it so we're starting to see s exclusivity decline a lot of content that was previously only available on Esport platforms are now available on free platforms. So, AVOD platforms, fast channels, it's kind of opened up some higher quality, more premium, and slightly newer content um, that's available for free. And yeah, there's a kind of guess, a couple of ways that we're seeing that we're seeing these sort of trends happen. So, one is licensing out sort of quite high quality content non-exclusively to um, another Esport platform. So, if we think of some of the HBO titles that were licensed to Netflix in the US, so the likes of Band of Brothers and other sort of really high quality titles. That's kind of one way. And obviously that will have benefits of, you know, having that title exposed to a much larger audience, especially if we're talking about something like Netflix. Licensing deals like that can also be really beneficial if you're launching another season of a show or launching like a spin-off series is it can sort of create a larger audience for it and then drive them to your platform. But we're also seeing free platforms kind of being used as a marketing tool as well. So making seasons or episodes available for free on fast channels or AVOD platforms, which can again help sort of drive consumers to watch more of the content on the paid services. It's also something we're seeing uh, leveraged by broadcasters who are putting full length episodes of content on YouTube more and more frequently. Um, so it's not just in terms of monetizing that content by getting more licensing revenue and things like that. It's actually being used quite strategically to try and pull in more more viewers and subscribers to these platforms sort of own services.
0: And one of the big sort of hits on Netflix in twenty twenty three was was Suits, which was, you know, a kind of middling US scripted drama. But it's been hugely successful on Netflix. Is there any lesson are there any lessons to be learned from the success of that and do we expect to see more examples down the line?
2: So I think I think that's a great example it's one of the my, most high profile ones as you said so in the US suits was always available on peacock but when it was then also licensed non exclusively to netflix it again reached a whole new audience it dominated in netflix's top 10s for i think it was something like 70 consecutive weeks which is crazy and far far longer than most netflix originals that were coming onto the service and one of the factors behind that was just the sheer number of hours of content available in suits it's a nine season um show um hundreds and hours of content so this again is something that's i think really really key when we're thinking about um transitioning more and more consumers onto the ad model and if we can get consumers binge watching these kind of box sets um that's obviously going to translate to more revenue than a mini series or um, a limited series however sort of successful and popular that that is so i think we'll start to see um, competition for some of these key box sets like you said more sort of middle ground competition for that really kind of increase it's turned out to be a win-win for
3: both netflix and mbcu because since then mbcu have announced they're making a spin-off show suits la now that there's that that growing audience for suits it makes sense to release something that they know will be a hit with that fandom.
1: I think it's interesting to compare that to the deal that NBCU did when they were launching Peacock, where they, uh, at the cost of 500 million, withdrew The Office from Netflix to put on their new streaming service. It's just interesting how kind of quickly that dynamic has flipped around since um, Peacock launched in 2020.
0: And Lottie, this isn't just about kind of the big players swapping their catalogs, there are some interesting opportunities for some of the smaller players as well.
2: Yeah, definitely. It can also be, as Hannah said, a win-win, even if you are a smaller player. So a nice example would be AMC licensed uh, number of titles to Max. And it was, I think, really clever because, you know, it wasn't just like a couple of titles standing unnoticed in Max's catalog. It was essentially a branded pop-up consumers knew it's for a limited time only and yeah a couple of like amc's tv shows uh landed on the platform so i think this is really clever again for max you know it can have the sort of the branded amc on there which gives like you know high quality content and so on but for amc it's also really beneficial because you know licensing that content on exclusively to a larger platform with more subscribers again brings in a new audience And if it's only available for a certain amount of time, it could lead to then consumers moving to AMC. And yeah, just also like brand perception, I think it really, really helps with. So I think that's an interesting one where it's where we can see how beneficial it's been for both a big player, but also a small player.
0: The examples we just talked about all seem to be distributors experimenting with content windows to see what will work. Uh, And as some of the examples, people have flipped 180 degrees within a couple of years about what the best practice is. And we're seeing new windows open up as well. So, a a lot of things are happening in in that space.
2: Yeah, I think if we look at how frequently pieces of content are moving around from one platform or to one channel to another, we can definitely see that movements, title movements, is, is increasing. And historically, this has been more common for movies, especially older movies that are licensed for shorter periods and tend to sort of move around more and more. But I think what we'll see is TV content starting to follow that pattern a little bit more going forward. And yeah, Windows kind of shortening as well. So, you know, if someone's got like a new show, typically before it was licensed out non-exclusively, it would, you know, it would be sort of years after. But I think we're starting to see that starting to move. So for example, things like Abbott Elementary, which is um an ABC show, goes on Hulu the next day. And then a couple of months after the season's over, it goes on to Max when it's still sort of relatively new. So I think we'll start seeing lots of things like that and of course yeah I kind of already touched on it a little bit but one of the other sort of new new things is definitely fast channels. We've seen loads and loads of fast channels continue to be launched over the past year more and more from sort of premium players and um big studios and so on. Um so it's interesting because you know in the US we're now getting to a stage where some of these fast platforms have 400 maybe more um channels available so it's kind of like when's that ceiling? going to be reached but i think there are definitely still challenges when it comes to fast so particularly when it comes to scripted content obviously the kind of fast laid-back viewing experience works really well for a lot of unscripted content or even procedurals you know the midsummer murders and and csi and types of shows like that i think it it works really well with but i do still think there's a way to go with consumer viewing for more premium scripted content HBO have a fast channel and they air sort of various titles, one of them being Westworld. And if you actually look at the broadcast slots that Westworld is aired in, it's really erratic. So there doesn't seem to be much like appointment viewing. So I think it would be hard for consumers to kind of follow that show linearly. And of course, like we've already said, fast can be used as like a marketing tool. So maybe people see an episode and then are driven to the platform for further viewing but interestingly Westworld is not available on any on-demand platform it's actually only available on this fast channel so yeah I still think there's a way to go when it when it comes to certain types of content and the viewing experience for consumers
0: and just on on fast I mean we've had a, a load of interest in it from clients and there's been a lot of heat around it in the last year or so uh, is that still going to carry on in the next year and is that still us specific?
2: Yeah, I think I think we're starting to see more broadcasters uh, launch fast channels on their platforms. Which you know, I think it's I think it's a good idea. It just offers consumers another way of watching that content. You know, particularly for broadcasters where a lot of their viewers might be slightly older and sort of used to the sort of linear and prefer like a linear viewing experience. It can help transition consumers over. Um, and we've sort of seen even SWOT platforms. So, for example. Paramount has some, what well, not fast channels because they're not free, so fast channels. <laughs> but they essentially have channels, linear channels on their platforms, which again can be really beneficial in driving viewers to certain titles within the catalogue. So again, kind of using it to highlight different things within their own platform.
0: And Hannah, just turning to you around theatrical, the theatrical window, is you know, an absolutely crucial window. There was a sense a couple of years ago that streamers were sort of um, trying to take a shortcut from that and less reliant on that. Again, as with the examples we mentioned earlier, there's been a bit of sort of flip-flopping on that and it's come back into vogue. And we've seen the likes of Amazon and Apple investing in in heavily in films with theatrical releases. So what value do those streamers see in the theatrical release and, and is this going to continue in 2024?
3: So I think for Amazon and Apple, it's important to note that they can rely on other revenue streams to invest into content, such as the e-commerce and tech businesses that they own. And Apple, it's a great way for them to expand their brand across a customer base that might not have an Apple device, might not use Apple TV+. So being seen in theaters and cinemas with high quality content might draw people to their platform. Amazon, of course, acquired MGM for reportedly $8.5 billion. So um, they are going to be want to be making use of that asset that they acquired. But as I mentioned, Apple and Amazon, it, they are slightly unique in their background. And actually, we've seen a slightly opposing view from Disney going forward. So they are looking, they think they've said that they're focusing on a quality over quantity and are cutting back on the number of theatrical releases in 2024 and beyond to focus on fewer titles and hopefully increase their kind of return on investment of those titles uh, instead of releasing as many as they did uh, last year and in previous years.
0: And Fred, you mentioned around the scripted commissioning strategy that there was a sort of risk-averse policy that you'd identified of people sticking with renewals rather than first run. What about movies? We saw in 2023 that the sort of classic franchises didn't Perform that well, and the big hits of the year was new IP, Barbie and Oppenheimer, for example. So, do you see that continuing in twenty twenty four Is there how will the studios balance that that risk averse commissioning strategy, or the sequence, the sequels, and the franchises with audiences' demand for new stuff?
1: I think in the theatrical space, things are a little bit different in that a lot of the big franchises are already showing pretty significant signs of fatigue. So. Disney already started to reduce the number of Star Wars films they were putting out. It's pretty clear that next year they're going to start reducing the number of Marvel films that are being released. Warner Bros. goes back and forth with what it does, what it's trying to do with its DC universe, but a similar trend, I think, away from kind of superhero franchises. But anything that is a significant hit, I think is still likely to generate spin-offs and sequels. An example of that would be the list of Properties that Mattel is now looking into adapting for the big screen after Barbie. So we have a dark version of Barney, the big purple dinosaur, um, produced by Daniel Kaluuya. You have a Polly Pocket movie, a Hot Wheels movie, a Magic 8-Ball horror film, which I think could potentially be excellent. So yeah, I think anything that's a big hit, people are going to try and feed off. And we're still probably in a place where the number of original ideas that sort of uh, hit the top of the box office i think 2023 is going to be more of a flash in the pan for that but an ongoing trend
3: there's also the new upcoming netflix show based on the card game exploding kittens as well which i'm guessing that might be a growing trend turning card games into yeah. tv shows
0: I'm looking forward to Subutio the movie. I don't know if it's in in development, but it should be. Um, any other suggestions we can inspire our... Honestly, I'll, I'll give with? it a
1: Google because I've played this game and it quite often turns out that somebody's bought it. Sadly, no. No, no one's got Subutio well, yet. You are, so you An can go up. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah.
2: Out of interest, what have you seen in the commissioning data when it comes to adaptations from various types of source material? Because... Obviously, we can see from some of the examples you listed where kind of lots of players are using um, proven fan bases. We saw in the last few years we're seeing more titles commissioned from games, for example, video games. But on the other hand, as players are trying to reduce costs, some of the rights for, you know, video games adaptations or, you know, popular book adaptations can surely get expensive. So how do you think that's going to affect things?
1: Frankly, I think in some of the more developed markets, we're seeing people start to run out of adaptable source material. So most big books now have a uh, development deal somewhere or another. And actually, an increasing trend we've seen over the last few years is actually people signing development deals for books that aren't even published yet. They're just, Mm. you know, a log line and somebody signs up for rights to adapt it when it's finished. I think that actually ties back in a lot into what we were saying earlier about big players looking internationally. One of the reasons for doing that is that you can pick up source material that hasn't previously been adapted. So um, Webtoons, which are sort of scrollable cartoons that are very big in Korea, uh, actually one of the big source materials for loads of the big Korean hits on Netflix and on Disney over the last few years. And so I think you'll see more and more studios looking for you know foreign books foreign video games foreign comic books and even uh entirely kind of new and novel art forms where they can find ip that they can adapt but isn't quite so well known to an audience meanwhile big sets of new ip that come from famous authors in the us or the uk will just demand larger and larger sums of money to get that development deal
0: Well, that's all we have time for today. So thank you very much to all our guests for their time and for sharing their research with us today. We've heard from Fred, Hannah and Lottie about the trends in commissioning, the downturn in 2023 and the impact that will have on 2024. We looked at the shift to international production. We talked about the changes in content licensing with new strategies around new windows, such as FAST. And we talked about the continued importance of theatrical windows. All the research discussed today is available on Ampere's website, so do get in touch if you're interested in accessing any of this. If you haven't already done so, make sure you're subscribed to the Amp podcast, as well as our weekly newsletter. And for more on Ampere's research and services, head to ampereanalysis.com or get in touch by emailing info at ampereanalysis.com. That's info at ampereanalysis.com. I'm Nick Thomas. I've been your host for today. The producer of this episode was Rory Goodrick. We hope you enjoyed the episode and thank you very much for listening.